Hello, uh, I am Andrzej Wisniewski from the C64 PSU, and you are listening to Scene World Podcast. Hey, it's the Scene World Podcast. I'm AJ. That's Jörg over there. In Hi there. The land of Germany. Right, right. Um, in a minute, we are talking to Brenda Romero. Right. Well, who doesn't know her? Well, mm. you should know her. She worked on computer games since, um, well, since a long time on Wizardy. Yes. For yes. once. Yeah. So, and um, she's once said in an interview where she was interviewed um, that she was even earlier than John Romero. Um, but John Romero, I already interviewed a couple of years ago for an historical interview. And um, so it took a few years until Brenda Romero had the time to talk to us. And um, well, yes, so this is it. This is the follow up of the Romeros, but this time with Brenda Romero. Yes. Of course, I insisted on interviewing them separately to give, give each of them their own career story to talk to us. So. Correct. But before we do that, we interesting. Have interestingly, uh, John Romero, a lot of his uh, games and stuff were published by Softdisk Publishing, which did Lodestar, which I was also published by. So nice. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, before the news. Right. Yeah. Or before before them rather is the news. God. Right. We're professionals. Right. So, um, well, apparently most of us heard of already. Bill Hurt released a book together, co-authored with Margaret Marie Bito, and it's about the time at Commodore in the 1980s and the genesis of the computers such as the C128, and it's called Back into the Storm. Yes, and he says most of us heard about it because somehow this missed my radar, and I did not yeah. know about this until now. Back into the storm, a science engineer stories of Commodore computers in the 1980s. Phil Hurd's full of awesome stories about about his time at Commodore and how much of a I know cluster, how much of a, a if you'll pardon the expression a clusterfuck Commodore was at the time. <laughs> right, right, yeah. You know, how they kind of snuck things into the 128 without you know they just did it without telling anybody and then by the time anyone found out about it it was too late to take it out to take it out so yeah he's also the guy behind the uh, plus four in the 16 line exactly yeah, that, that whole line that's the most the famous in in east europe yeah the ted chip that was his his baby yep and i believe that they were gonna try to put that in the 128 but for some reason it didn't work and that's why they ended up having to use I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. There was there was something they had to come up with their own eighty column chips, and they pulled it from another place that wasn't ready yet. And yeah, yeah. So, and the other news is that, um, well, my Nintendo news actually released a news article about Nintendo originally in um, intended to be involved in the Tokyo Olympics. Featuring Lady Gaga emerging from a warp pipe from uh, Super Mario Bros. But that didn't happen. So we will link to that story. Okay, okay. And I saw on Twitter 
that um, Arcanic Labs actually released um, a tweet with a screenshot about the current status of Lost Realms of the Morka Dasta episode one. That's um, a C64 conversion of um, a TI-99-4A game mm -hmm. that's actually running a Kickstarter at the moment. Oh, okay. Well, where's the, what's yeah. the uh, link for that? We post a link to that, and it's actually okay. a reprint, a second printing. Okay. okay. It's called Realms of the Antiquary, the Scattered Crown Collector's Edition. Okay. So right. there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Cool. So yeah, as I said, so um, there. Well. It may sound like the two are connected, but they aren't. Um, well, it's just by chance, both um, RPGs, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. Okay, okay. It's interesting. Well, oh, <laughs> the funny thing is, Originally, I wasn't sure um, for what platform that was because it's not mentioned in the pledges, actually, right. in the rewards mm -hmm. that you could pledge for. But if you go to campaign, it's actually saying in the story that it's a TI-99 for a game. Mm -hmm. And my... Um, my my first impression for some reason was that the um the game from Arcanix Labs is a C64 version of the TI99 game but that isn't so um well okay. anyway things can get confusing with all those releases in Kickstarter but both Apple. but both happen to be RPG games mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they are actually called CRPG and at mm -hmm. the moment, as I'm not really a fan of the genre, I don't know if C stands for character set RPG. I don't know. I have no idea what that C stands for in RPG. I know that um, RPG stands for role-playing game, but um, C RPG probably Com means character. Computer, computer role-playing game. Ah, computer. Okay, so not character, not character set. Yeah, no. Right. Yeah, we will also hear in the story of Brenda Romero that actually her role-playing game experience started with tabletop games. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so perhaps that's a good, um, a good moment to jump over yes. from the news section to the interview. So enjoy. So bye bye. Whoa. So today. We are having another podcast guest again, and this time it's Prenda Romero. Hello, Prenda. Hey. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, well, so hope everything is fine over there in Ireland. Yeah, it's great, actually. I mean, well, you know, we're finally opening back up, so it's, uh, yeah, it's actually pretty exciting. I, I never thought I'd say I was as excited as I am to go to a restaurant, but I'm <laughs> never been this unreasonably excited to go to a restaurant in my life. Right, right. 
So we talk today because basically you are a very known game designer, and there's something you always point out in interviews. You always point out that you were first in the industry than John. <laughs> That's only you know the funny thing about it is, is I think that's because nobody ever when John is with me nobody well I don't I won't point it out unless somebody um, how would that how do I even say how that started is like if, when John and I are together you cannot even imagine the amount of times that people will say oh does does your wife make games too or they're surprised and I can assure you nobody has ever said that like oh does your husband make games too. Right, um, you know, so there, or there's this assumption like, oh, you're in marketing or you're in PR or something like that. You know, that actually, I wanted to be very clear that those roles are obviously critically important to games. Right. Um, but people are are surprised, and I've actually had uh, that, that the specific instance I think you're talking about. I was speaking at a conference, right. and I was talking about my career. And right. Saying that, um, you know, I, and it was about staying in the industry, and you know, I've stayed in the industry for a really long time. And the people, um, people, it's whoever it was who covered, you know, the conference highlights for the day, actually said that I was talking about John's career, right? And so, like, you know, no, I was talking about my own, and in fact, I've been in the game industry longer than he has. And so, I think, I think that's one of, it's part of one of the talks that I give, just about like. You know, why would you assume that I'm at, at a game conference giving a talk on John's career? I mean, in fairness, at this point, I probably could. Yeah. But still, it was just a, it was a ridiculous assumption. Like, obviously, she must be talking about his career. Um, and that is actually, and also because we spoke to other people that had something to say on Wizardy, um, when I when I emailed you, I emailed you both, inviting you both. And I remember you were emailing me back, and I said, no, I want to talk to you guys separately. <laughs> so, John was first, and then, till you got some time, it took a while. Um, let's, let's start, how we start always with our guests, how did it happen that you got in touch with computers and stuff? I mean, you, you had to start in the career 81, so I guess, perhaps, at the age of the 70s, you got in touch with computers? Um, the first thing, well, I, I started making games when I was probably five or six, uh, not obviously on computers, but we, um, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we were, I, it was just me and my mom, uh, and so we would go to yard sales or boot sales or flea sales, flea markets, whatever you want to call them, and she would give me usually a dime, and with a dime I could get whatever I wanted, but you can't, obviously, you can't get much of a dime. So what I did get is I would buy board games. And if you know, they might have a board game that was two bucks if it had all its pieces. But if it didn't have all its pieces, you know, you could have it for a dime. And so I ended up just collecting a bunch of board game pieces, and then I would make my own board games from mm. those. And so that is how I started. And then at some point in time, my mom gets me D and D, the original one, which also probably came from the flea market because I can't even imagine why that would have been sold. And then she comes home with a Vic Twenty. And the VIC-20 is the first time I, which I'm also positive, came from a flea market. Well, we had no money, so assume that anything that comes into the house is given or found or something. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my first introduction to it. And then when I, then 
when I got to Surtec when I was 15 years old, that's when I actually, you know, I'm on the then super powerhouse that was an FC, which sounds ridiculous now, but absolutely was a super powerhouse. Yes. <laughs> that's the time. Ah, was it, 20. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, um, well, the thing is, I remember when, when I saw the Apple II uh, once, I saw it basically running Flight Simulator 2. I was like, okay, it doesn't really look better than on the no. C64. So I was like, okay, it's well, not not too much comparable. Perhaps. I, well, whatever monitor I was on with the VIX-20, it was a black and white monitor. So oh, I would right. not have seen anything. When I first saw Wizardry, it had, well, actually, I would have seen... I would have gotten into programming at high school. Like, back then, it's funny, because nowadays, schools tend to just put you in with, um, you know, typing and learning how to do spreadsheets and that sort of stuff. Right. But back then, like, if you wanted a spreadsheet, you had to code it, basically, mm -hmm. you know? Yes. yes. So we, I was actually taking, um, I was taking programming uh, basic and then Pascal at the high school. Uh, we had a math teacher, Mr. Cavanaugh, who loved programming and was happy to introduce it to people. And so I loved that class, absolutely loved it. And then I got, so I would have had access to those computers in high school, but then I then I started working at Surtech. Um, and, you know, that was love at first sight. Like, you know, I, I know nowadays when people first see VR, you know, there's loads of reactions and videos, right? Like people go like, ah, right? For me, that's what it was like seeing the wizardry, wizard, you know, animating in the cauldron. I was mind blown. I've never seen anything like that. Just, you know, my God, it was, it was love at first sight. And I, my first day at work, I was, you know, I was supposed to work four to eight. And I would obviously show up a little bit early, but I was supposed to work four to eight and I would come in from three to eight and then two to nine and then one to ten <laughs> you know uh, I came in on like is anybody going to be in the office on the weekend so I can play this game absolutely <laughs> head over heels I've you know I've there's there's really not there are very few games that have taken me the way Wizardry did you know I just that was it I was gone really quickly just to jump back how did you do in Pascal class what did I do in Pascal? Oh, jeez, I don't remember, but I'm sure I did well. I love coding. Um, well, see, I love coding. I, I, I was really good at assembly language and basic, but when we, when we got to Pascal, it, I, I, I was awful. I couldn't get it. Never could yeah, get it. Yeah, I didn't. You know, I, the interesting thing is I have next to no memory of Pascal. Um, and, but the reason I felt strongly that I needed to learn Pascal was because Wizardry was written in U.S. U.S. BC, yeah, USBC Pascal, mm -hmm. and I mean, hopefully I've got that right. Oh, sorry. No um, um, that it was, let me just shut this off. It's my alarm reminding me of this, which is for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, never mind. It was my alarm for, I, never mind. Um, so I I started, anyway, it was, Wizardry was written in a combination of Pascal and assembly language, and so I really thought I needed to start in Pascal, and it's you know it's a different thing because John, my husband, he he was on the West Coast, and so he was surrounded by loads of people who were into computers. I was in Augensburg, New York, and truly there are more um, cows in, in St. Lawrence County than there are people. 
right? It's very much a rural, it's, it's rural, um, you know, salt of the earth, bright people. Oh, yeah. Uh, but there were not, like, I was not going to run into a computing club there. And so I thought I needed to learn Pascal because that's what we agree was written in, and there was nobody that was going to correct me, <laughs> you know? So uh, I did eventually, when I got into college, I, that, I took assembly language in college. Um, I got to see in it. I actually, <laughs> okay. I found my report card. Um, I found my report card. I took assembly language first, second semester. And my first year was a bit of a, you know, pretty sheltered kid. I was 17 when I went to college. So, you know, it was kids who thought of home. Woo! It's a miracle I got a C, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. Um, but, yeah, when I was in college, I took. I took basic again because they made you take that before you took the other stuff. But I took assembly language and um, mostly just math courses and programming courses and writing courses. It was a weird. It was a. It was actually a perfect degree for game design. Um, mm-hmm. Not that it was called that. It was called technical writing, which is basically um, I'm going to write manuals about um, software. And right. game design is really just writing a manual for software that needs to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's more than that, obviously, but, but certainly my degree didn't hurt. It was, yeah, so it was, it was half and half computers, uh, maps, and, and writing. That's half that's and half, perfect. a third, a third, <laughs> a third. <laughs> I mean, that's perfect because game design is so much like, like, like you said, it's, it's the, it's the writing the manual part, but it's also the, the writing the fiction part aspect of the of the game as well, right? The yeah. story, the backstory and, and all that. Yeah. That is why it's in the EU now considered art and preservable mm-hmm. like movies and and uh, music and stuff. Yeah. And that that wasn't the case for the longest time. Um I I actually I actually heard in another interview that you got your job uh, in coding during a toilet break. I don't know if I remember that correctly. No, this is all <laughs> that I have the weirdest start in the industry. Yes, so um, <laughs> it's, a, it's barely more nuanced than that. So in okay. northern New York, where I grew up, it's under snow 13 months out of the year, or at least that's what it feels like. So if you smoke, you would, you know, you would sneak a smoke break in the bathroom. Right, this is not allowed, and I certainly don't advocate smoking, like particularly for any reason, let alone to get a job. But I smoked then, so I was in the bathroom, and a, a girl came in, uh, and she was obviously looking for, and she was looking for a cigarette, but it was obvious for when he would offer one, she, oh no, she didn't want that one, and it was she was looking for a non-menthol cigarette, which I had, and so I offered her one, and to be polite, and this, this girl, that she was then a girl, it was Linda, now she's Linda Curry, but she's Linda Saratek, so actually one of the founders of the company, and her family founded the company, and she, uh, she just, I guess to be polite, asked me, did I have a job? No. Had I ever heard of Saratek? No. Had I ever heard of Wizardry? No. Had I ever heard of Dungeons and Dragons? And I had, I was a DM. Right, and so she said, you know, show up, you know, okay, well, this, I'm sure there was some more chit chat from there, but show up at the house Tuesday, um, I think it was October 6th, uh, and show up at the house, and, and I did, and that was, that was where I first saw Wizardry, and man, I fell in love, and that's when I got the job. Mm. Wow. Oh, that's, that's really amazing. Yeah, it's, it's incredible luck, really, like, I... 
there have been many times I had a conversation with Robert Woodhead not too long ago um, with the original uh, creator, he and Andrew Greenberg were the original creators of Wizardry and I just said like, Scott, what if I hadn't had that conversation? What if yeah. What if I had, you know, like I, I tried to get a job uh, working in a restaurant, a friend of mine was a waitress in a restaurant and I tried to get a job in that restaurant, but when I went for the interview, they said, I had a button-up shirt on, and one of the buttons on my shirt lowered down, like beyond my breast was open, and the wife, and I couldn't see it, right, but the wife of the owner did, thought I was trying to pick the owner up. <laughs> really? They were going to pick somebody up. That's not how I do it. Um, uh, but anyway, so I didn't get the job. Thank goodness I didn't get the job. Thank goodness for that button. Uh, because, like, I think about that question, do you have a job? Yes. Oh, well, that ends that. And Robert, right. uh, the reason I brought up Robert, Robert's just not, you know, I'm pretty sure you would have made your, hair, your way here in some way. But I don't know, you know. Like, I, I, I don't know how would I have I mean, I was in northern New York, for God's sake. You know, there were, right. there were other things that I could have done. I, I have a feeling I probably would have ended up being a lawyer. I think that's probably the route hmm. I would have gone. Perhaps in the field of video games and licenses and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I've read that you that you did this job for 18 years. Is that correct? At Surtech, yeah. Surtech, I was there for 19, I think 20 years, 81 to 2001. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a long, long time. Why did you Why did you leave, or did the company fold? Well, I, you know, it, it happened. The company was, I was on maternity leave, um, and I knew, you know, at some point in time, it's like, I, you know, I had worked on, I had worked on games with swords for 20 years. And also, you know, during this time, that there, there was, there were some, like, the Jagged Alliances, which I love, uh, but I also knew that I, you know, I, I wanted to do something different, and I also think that in general, like, this is in the benefit of hindsight. I obviously learned a lot at Surtech. But at some point in time, you are better off. Like, have I learned what I needed to learn here? Should I go, should I, you know, should I move sort of to that to that next level in that next space or, you know, whatever? And I really should have done that. Um, uh, I, I really should have done that. That's not to, that's right. not to say that the people there were terrible. They, they certainly weren't. But I... <laughs> I had other lessons to learn from other people, and I, I wish I would have. I wish I would have done that. Um, Twenty years is a long time to stay in one place. Wow! And then you moved to Atari, right? I did. Uh, well, let's see. I went from Sturtec. Uh, yeah, actually, I did. I went from Sturtec to Atari, which was then it, it went through many names while I was there. So <laughs> Microprose, Hasbro, yes. Infogram, and then yeah. and then. Atari, let it die. That was actually part of the question. Why Atari, which is so flaky, even back then? I mean, as I said, they were pretty unstable in in the industry. Well, well, because they weren't Atari. Well, it wasn't Atari then, right? Like it was. It, bear in mind, this was like you know, MPS Labs, Microsoft Studios. This was oh, and like probably for what it's called nearly enough. Is even though I got into the industry and. So, well, I got into the industry so early, and I got to see everything grow up, and I, you know, I got to see the behind the scenes of everything. 
Civilization One, which doesn't come out for another ten years after I start in the industry, but the first two was mind blowing to me. I it, there was just like it's a reaction that I think nobody would have unless they come from you know they played pinball or something like I did, right? So I was and it was an involuntary reaction. You know, like when you get startled, you jump. Mm-hmm. Right, I had this involuntary reaction because I used to be fascinated in, in this bowling alley in Augensburg where pinball games and um, and I used to like when they would work on them, I would love to get behind them and see like how are all these things connected or if they have a pop up. I love that. Mm-hmm. And so there was this one moment in Civilization where something was happening and I couldn't figure out how it was happening, and I involuntarily leaned to look behind the monitor and he <laughs> guys. <laughs> immediately caught myself like nobody behind the monitor. It's like everything's inside. It was a totally involuntary movement in Civilization One, um, you know, to this day, like my if I am banished to an, an island where I only get one game for the rest of my life, I'm taking Civ Red. Wow. Um and I have like it's ridiculous. I have a backup I have two backup consoles just in case the main console dies. I have backup discs so I can play stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Like, you know, like maybe if I have to be buried with the game, that's the game that's going into the ground with me, you know. It, it's, uh, anyway, I don't even know how I got on that, but um, I don't know how I got on that, so save me from this because I'm just like, <laughs> now. I mean, it's a good game to get buried with. Right, right. Or, or to be stuck on an island with. Right, yeah. Um. So. What what happened afterwards? I mean, I mean, oh, I I saw. Atari. Oh, that's where we were going. Yeah. So. Yeah. Atari. This is Microprose. So this is Sid Meier's original studio. Like right. I was basically walking around in, you know, following his ghost. You know, yeah. like it, it. even to this day, I I know Sid. Um, and even to this day, now obviously, you know, it's been a while since there's been any live events, but. Whenever I see him and he says hi, Brenda, I'm always like, oh my god, it's Sid Meier. Oh my <laughs> god, yeah. Sid Meier knows me. Oh my god, that fanboy will never ever die. And I'm sure he's probably heard me tell the story and he's mortified. <laughs> Maybe he hasn't, but um, but anyway, so I was just delighted to be there. Now the game uh, that the studio was making was bit of a weird one. So it was Dungeons and Dragons. I was intimately familiar with that. Uh, it, but it was it was like an action take on it, and the production mandate. So the mandate from the executive producers was um, no missions, no quests, same thing, no sword, no weapon upgrades. It's basically like an arcade game, and you go in and you just beat your way from the beginning to the end, no gold, no nothing. Mm-hmm. And I remember being like, you know, being on the gigs for like three months and going. That I'm the right designer for this, you know. Like I, I know how to make a hardcore RPG where you are leveling up and you are doing, you know, everything you do in a traditional RPG. And believe it or not, I got this sounds like it can't be possible, but I really think it was. At we were three months from launch when, like, the, it, it, that's just not fun, right? Sure, it's fun for the first 15 minutes. <laughs> But at some point in time, you expect in an RPG some kind of progression, right? Um, I mean, it's not like Mario going through, you know, different levels and collecting points, and now you get to the next level. And so it was just, we had a, we had a big meeting, um, 
where uh, this one guy, uh, you know, I just said, you have to put this in. And so this one programmer who was really generally very quiet said, you know, he spoke up. It was it was like it was like a chair speaking. Everybody's like, oh, right? Because <laughs> like you never you just wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Like, we have to we have to do what Brenda wants. But this game was not going to be made fun, and so um, certainly not with the production mandate it had. And so we at the literally at the last minute slammed in quests. So and this is into like levels that already exist. A leveling system, a store, um, a, a weapons like. It was it was all at the last minute and on fire. And the fact that that game, like, you know, when people critique it, they're like, ah, oh, it's too easy to drop for it. I'm, it's a miracle. That game <laughs> was a miracle that it came out as good as it did because it was such a small amount of time to make that happen. It's, it's a, honestly, it's a miracle. It's a credit to the team that that even happened. As you said, it was originally planned to just go in and... Uh, fight your way through. I think yeah. that would be now they called a uh, slash and slay kind of game, where you just like brutally. That's a new one. That's a new one. Yeah. What? Yeah, but it, this is Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like, I think you, you kind of have to you have to pay attention to what what do people expect when they have Dungeons and Dragons? I'm going to get a character. I'm going to go into a dungeon. And I'm going to level that character up. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the very that is the very basis of of D and D is you know this character that carries through and grows. It's character development like that. That is, mm -hmm. it's the very basis of of that. So um, to to not deliver that, you know, to not deliver that would be a problem. And I even think like we could extend that. Like like there was um, another game that I worked on, Playboy, um, which and that is like yet another like sort of a weird thing that happened with that because. You couldn't do like what when when you say okay you are now taking Hugh Hefner's shoes you are in Hugh Hefner's shoes what do you want to do now you don't have to answer that question right but there is not there's not a a live person who is attracted to women women who doesn't say well you know now that you mentioned this here are the things that I would like to do if I were Hugh Hefner right. Not one of those people would go, you know what, that's great that he's got all that stuff, but I'd like to run his magazine empire. Okay, maybe there's like 10 people who might say that, but because of the, because of game rating, we were really limited in what we could do. And so absolutely great IP, uh, but there was a mismatch in between people's expectations. Like I... I later saw a guy, actually, I just happened to be walking down, and this is, this is when, I guess, I'm trying to figure out, who knows what he was coming out with, but he walked out of the store and he had something in, in like, a, a brown bag, and I, who knows what it was, but That's he never imagined, yeah, well, whatever it was, he came out of the store with that, and he, he like, kind of, like, stayed and he walked, and I was like, that's how people, like, that kind of anticipation, like, I've got this shady thing, business bag and I'm going home and we're going to have a shady time with this shady thing <laughs> and you know that kind of should have like you, you'd think players would you know that's probably what players expected not I'm going to run a magazine mm -hmm. but because of the rating system 
I, it would have been, I think, okay in Europe because, you know, nudity versus violence, like violence is treated much more strictly over here, but it's the other way in the U.S., and the U.S. is the prime market. Exactly. Right? So, exactly. So, um, so anyway, it was what it was, and the funny thing about that, the, the game, I actually, every once in a while I'll get an email or somebody will comment on it, and it ended up being a, like a popular adventure game for women. So, mm. uh, like, and I, most people who say that they really liked it are women. Their boyfriends bought it, right? Mm-hmm. But they ended up really enjoying it and playing it, which is clearly not the intent. Um, but yeah, you know, it was still, you know, like I, I, you know, I learned a lot from that game and, you know, did with it, did with it what we could do. Actually, Wikipedia says your research on that game went into a book published called Sex in Video Games. Yeah, it's, so I, it did, and I um, I ended up, uh, there was nothing, right? There was really nothing that, it, uh, certainly there were a load of sex games, but you would expect, um, you would expect this information would have been collated. Like, if you were curious about the history of Doom, for instance, you know, buckle in for two weeks, three weeks, there's so much stuff to read through. But when it came to adult content and video games, there, there wasn't. Um, and so I just, and the book sounds a lot more titillating than it is. I mean, it's very academic, you know. Um, even the first edition of the book, uh, I, the publisher refused to put pictures in it. And I would watch people, like, at GDC, they would get the book, and they would take the book, and they'd go like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're disappointed. They've, once I got the rights to the book back, I, it's loaded with pictures now, so... So those people aren't but. I, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, those type of games. I always wonder how people would find um, strip poker in the early eighties exciting, yeah. given the video, the the picture yeah. quality yeah. on on old machines like the Commodore sixty four or um, yeah, or I, the yeah, Apple II, whatever. But I think it comes down to like if you think about how people like this will be an. <laughs> weird topics for game podcasts. But, I mean, if you think about how people, you know, people often have sex with the lights off. Right. Right? It's not so much what you see, although, sure, it is, but it's what your imagination does with what you see. Right? Mm -hmm. So, the fact that the best graphics we had looked like graphics made by a typewriter, well, you know, (laughs) our our minds filled in the blanks, I guess. True. True. But, But here's the interesting thing. If you if you go figure that all those games were made in the early 80s and especially the Commodore 64 towards the um, end of its its lifetime, people got more uh, graphic um, graphic modes and new cr- compression methods, and of course those coders who developed new graphic um, modes used um, porn pictures as an example. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know? yeah, so, especially now that everything is so incredibly ubiquitous, it seems ridiculous. Back then it wasn't. I mean, yeah. when I was working on Playboy, one of the things um, that I learned was that everybody has a Playboy story. Probably <laughs> not now, but everybody has a Playboy story. I never I played the game. Shame on me. Not that, not that story. I mean, yeah, no. I, if, I mean, you know, I found my father's Playboy. I was at my uncle's and... Okay. You know, so and so had a copy and brought it to school. Everybody's got one of those. We found there was a rock wall in the woods. We found this old box uh, under some rock in the corner. Little playboys, and I was like, 
eight years old. And now those are probably really collectible. Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, they were pretty pretty moist at the time. Oh. They were sitting outside in a cardboard box. But. Oh, oh, yeah. That'd be rough, yeah. Curious. I should go and see if they're still there. It's been, been 37 years. Well, you, you work with a lot of interesting stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, um, well, what, what happens then? I mean, after that? Let's see. Well, so I go, um, you know, I work for, I work at Atari, I work at Cyberlore, um, and then, so I was Wizardry in Jagged Alliance and all those games for a while. And then I decide, uh, you know, at that point in time, I had, I had stuff largely to the northeast because uh, that's where my family was from. My mom was ill, and I just didn't want to be too far away. So I stuck largely to the northeast. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when my mom passed, then I could, you know, then I felt I could go wherever I wanted to go. Uh, so I ended up. I remember I had this, this, you know, geez, do I want to, because the game industry was getting, you know, at that point in time, the game industry was getting, uh, well, I guess it's always been pretty cutthroat, pretty ruthless, but it was getting to the point where I was like, my God, like, every couple of years, if a company closes, you have to pick up everything and move, and I, at this point in time, I had um, three kids, three little kids, and I wanted some degree of permanence before they went into school, and so... I remember standing, um, you know, at, at my sister's farm and just looking back, you know, they had a whole bunch of land and I was just looking back and I'm like, man, just looking out on this big field of green, I'm thinking, what am I even qualified to do? You know, like, I literally, I am a lifelong game developer. Um, and so I, then I was sort of like, I wonder if anybody's teaching me this. Because I could, I could do that. So I saw that there was an ad uh, for the Savannah College of Art and Design, um, and I, and man, I put, you can't even imagine, like, I was clearly coming into there with more experience than anybody, um, but I still, you know, I was, I was like, I was pitching myself like I was pitching the game and trying to save the company, you know, I was, uh, and they didn't even let me get through the whole pitch, they, they just said, like, you know, you're exactly what we're looking for, and you know, I felt in some sense that I was pre-hired. So, um, so I worked at uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. I was the chair there. And I think the great thing about, um, so there's this whole period where I, you know, I teach at Savannah College of Art and Design. And then, um, the, and I have taught at a couple other colleges uh, full-time or, and, and then even more part-time, just like teaching a course here and there. But one of the great things about that time is because I had been in the industry by then, 25 years, and all I had been doing was like, just imagine like you're in a car and you're always in fourth gear. You are always flying it, right? There is no time to stop and go, hold on, what the hell? You know, like this is a, during this time when I had been exploring it, Rap Costa had put out Theory of Fun, um, the, uh, Rules of Play had come out. Um, Loads of different books. Greg Kostikian started writing all kinds of stuff. Doug Church was writing things. Most of which I never, maybe I read, I certainly read the stuff Greg was posting about and the stuff that uh, Doug Church was, but I just didn't have time to stop. I didn't have time to stop to play loads of other games or um, to really go, okay, I've made all these things, but why was, why were these good? Why were these not good? You know, fundamentally, what are the rules? 
of games. And teaching gave me that time to what I felt catch up. You know, to just uh, to to look at games from a critical perspective. It also, for the first time, freed me from any kind of commercial limitation. So I could start saying, you know, like, what if I wanted to take a really, what if I wanted to make a game about a really horrible experience? Like, can games be about something more than just fun? Right? Like, can they be, like, movies can be, like, you can walk out of movies and just be <laughs> devastated. Right. Um, photographs can capture and express difficult emotions, but games at that point in time, anyway, didn't. Like, the thing that everybody talked about was, um, and, uh, oh my goodness, why can't I remember the game, Steve Moretzky's game, uh, is it kind of tall? No, it's not, that's the wrong game. Oh, anyway, there's a scene in a game that I'm going to remember the second we hang up. Uh, and that was the one that people usually refer to as something that made people cry. Uh, but I wanted to see, could I make games about difficult subjects? And so I picked you know, six of the most difficult time periods in human history mm-hmm. and tried to make a game about them and tried to make that game as good as I could. You know, and, and since they were all analog, like money wasn't an issue. You know, I would say, like, the most expensive of the games is probably 2000 you know, and that was, you know, a good chunk of that was for the leather hides that I needed for it. Um, but uh, but that was a foundational period in game design for me, because I was able to, not that I expected anybody to ever see them, but I was really able to say, like, what don't I know how to do? How can I do that to the best of my ability? And, and that best isn't going to be like, well, we promised to ship it, or you know, we're we're in this launch cadence, and we've got to go out the door now, or you right. know, well, there's been all this marketing spend, right? So it was freed of all the industry stuff. All, just all of it was gone. Hmm. Wow, it's it's amazing. Um, and and then at some point, I mean, reading further down the line, um. You actually got known for Wizardy 8. Yeah, oh yeah, well Wizardy 8, that was like a, you know, what a, what a great crew that was. Like that, everybody who was on that team, uh, was on that team because they loved what they were doing. They loved Wizardry. Um, you know, Linda, you know, that, that, that girl who was, who got me into the industry was now no longer a girl. Uh, you know, Linda, Linda was there, um, we, uh, Linda was still working on it, so it was me, Linda, Alex Maduna, Charles Miles, um, Derek Galanz, um, I mean, there was a large team, but, you know, we spent days and days and days sitting around a kitchen table, Linda and I were both pregnant, so there was lots of pies and cookies involved, um, but sitting around the kitchen table just trying to figure out in, in the kitchen table it was in the office like there was a kitchen that was in the office right. uh, but yeah Wizardry 8 was really just a tremendous labor of love um, it, 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 I, I'm sure there's a story that I don't know which is why didn't that get a big you know a massive big box release everywhere it did but eventually it was literally directly sold by EB Games you know so it didn't uh, and I don't know why. I don't know why somebody wouldn't pick that up. It ended up getting five RPG a year awards. Yeah, just, just wanted to say exactly. It got RPG of the year award. 
yeah, it was you know it was a, it was a really good game, an absolute labor of love. You know, it was. Um, uh, I I don't have the thought. I I wouldn't have been part of any of the discussions. You know, where where people have said, yeah, but we don't want that. And it was really like it was a weird time for RPGs too, right? Because um, there there had been a couple very critical questions that had happened during that period of time, which are do the multiplayer or not? Right? So Wizardry said not. We're going to stick with single player. Then, do you go massively multiplayer or not? <laughs> M-M-O-P-R-G. Right. And so <laughs> you're seeing the rise of Ultima Online, you know, there are, so Ultima Online and then um, uh, Diablo went through the office, you know, like, like a, Jesus, like a hurricane. <laughs> you know, everybody, it, and the thing about it is, is like when Diablo came out, a lot of the people who worked on traditional hardcore RPGs were like, you know, what's that? It's sort of like shooter. People who play shooters, you know, are like auto-aiming. Like, what's that garbage? You know, it's... I remember it that. I remember it that, yeah. It wasn't like that bad, but, but Diablo really showed that, you know what? Players don't feel like balancing checkbooks while they're playing. They really do. They want to enjoy the RPG experience, but they don't want all the min-maxing stuff to be hardcore RPGs or ha that they have. And we had seen a lot of series, um, you know, that were dying, like the Ultima series, like the traditional Ultima series, Might and Magic Barstale, SSI Goldbox series. You know, all of their games have fallen by the wayside. And then you have these occasional hardcore ones like Wizardry, like Neverwinter Nights, like Anachronauts, you know, that were more, you know, Anachronauts was certainly different and innovative in many ways. Um, but it was really, like, that was the point in time where people were were thinking, like, well, this is this is it. Like, hardcore RPGs are, are dying. And it was that it was that realization, you know, that's why I was standing on the back of the porch at my sister's house going, what am I going to do? Like, I've been, I've been making RPGs now basically for 20, 20-some years. What am I qualified? What is, what is it? You know, and, and, and now it seems ridiculous because there's tons of RPGs out there. But there was a period in the industry where, like, it was just a big giant car crash for RPGs. I mean, the same happens with um, real-time strategy games, RTS. You know, since since Command and Conquer went down, there haven't been many RTS games. So it's the same. It, it seems to happen with any genre in a period of time yeah, they, in the game they, industry. They, they wax and wane popularity, and, and right, right, the nostalgia brings them back. But uh, we spoke about awards. You even got some awards yourself. For example, top 20 women in games, top 100 most influential women in the game industry, and so on and so forth. So, Yeah, well, I mean, I, I figure, like, if you just keep doing the same thing for a very long time, you will eventually, you'll eventually get some kind of award. <laughs> Hear that, Yurg? So we just, we just gotta keep doing this. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, like if, if yeah, if you just keep doing it, eventually you, you make your mistakes, you get your mistakes out of the way, and then you make new mistakes. But um, yeah, you, you know, eventually, eventually you'll you'll hit your stride, I guess. And for me, you know, I think Train was, you know, just in terms of massive innovations, Train will probably be it you know nobody's done anything like that before 
there's a lot of stuff in Empire of Sin that people haven't done before either. It's a really complicated game. You know, that one is you know still live, and we're still we're still working on that one. Wow, nice. I mean, um, interestingly, as as AJ mentioned, most people got an award, or many people, if you do it long enough, and and many actually tell us like, oh, I'm getting a lifetime achievement award in my 45s. I, I I still want to I still want to make games and and music and so on. So uh, some people even get them pretty early in their career. Yeah, you know, I mean, but we we are still a fairly young industry, right? And I think that is in part because not that games have been around a, a good long time, right? Like you know, especially go back to the '80s, right? So they've been around a good long time, but not many people have stuck around for this length of time. Yeah. So, so you know, you have this handful of people that have been making games for 40 years, a much larger handful of people that have been making them for 30 years, and you know, and then 20 years. But you know, considering that the average game developer is in and gone in five years, you know, 10 years is a lifetime in this industry. That's 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 actually true. Um, many people I interviewed that that were known for one or two games and then after five or ten years they said like i quit you know uh, so that's actually true that's actually true yeah and 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 then where did it happen that you that you met john and then you decided to to move to ireland and um made your own studio i mean now you are employed by yourself right kind of i am yeah, so if I have any complaints, <laughs> I just look in the mirror. Um, well, so John and I actually met uh, back in 87. He was working then at Origin Systems. And so there had, because they were they were in the Northeast, we had gone over to Origin. And so that's where I first met John. Um, and we, uh, so we knew each other, you know, and, and I guess would, you know, we were, we, during his, like, super famous time um, he was nearly unapproachable not because of him but simply because it, because it was doom and quake and if he was out anywhere you know like at E3 or whatever it was a cloud right um, but uh, but John and I when whenever we would go to conferences uh, John also like I, I don't drink he doesn't drink we like to play board games you know we're both nerdy in all the appropriate ways and so we would just end up talking. Like, we come from the same time in the game industry. You know, we we worked on competing projects. We know all the same people. And so we were friends for years. And then I was working on, um, I was actually working on a, a, a master's degree. And I wanted to interview somebody who was sort of a jack of all trades, like who really knew the game industry from code. Um, and I wanted to focus on that person because it was an art master's degree and, and see if I could compare their work to a traditional artist's work. So, um, so anyway, I, I settled on this um, comparing John Romero, believe it or not, comparing John Romero's level design style to the painting process of Jackson Pollock, which sounds ridiculous, except Jackson Pollock goes over and over and over painting, and what you're really looking at is a, an artifact of a thinking experience. With John, he's just the same exact thing. And any level that he's worked on is an artifact of his play experience. So I, I was interviewing John about this, and unbeknownst to me, 
his marriage had fallen apart, and unbeknownst to him, my marriage had fallen apart. Uh, and so we, we just talked and talked and talked and talked and talked uh, for a long time, and then um, and then at some point in time, he just he literally like at some point in time we're aware of this, but we never talked about it. Um, and at one point in time, he was just on his way, I think, to E3, and we were, he just sent me a text to say he was getting on the plane, and, uh, and just said, I love you, and hit send, and I just, <laughs> wow, <laughs> okay, and I was on a plane, and I can't do, I can't say anything, right, mm-hmm. so I think I, I think I probably called Sherry Grain Array, thing. um, but the funniest thing about, uh, about that, the entire thing, was that, our closest friends were like, obviously, if you got a, we wondered when this was going to happen, right? And <laughs> all of us were like, right. you could have said something like literally anything in the last 25 years. Um, but it's, uh, so anyway, we become a couple, uh, we've been a couple for a long time. We end up, we end up working, um, John is always drawn to what is the new thing that people are doing and can he do it better and so we started actually working in social games um you know he got working on Ravenwood Fair um which you know it's funny because the the industry you know so many people were like oh Romero's working on social games and the game that he made had 25 million monthly players you know it was bigger than wow uh at the time and well not just he made it like we both worked on it um but we ended up making uh, Ravenwood Fair. Then we left uh, the company where we did that and started our own company. Uh, and we ran that company for five years, working in social and mobile games. And it was great. Like it was, like if you think about D and D, and D is a game that you play synchronously with. Well, I guess asynchronously. Um, people are on the table. Uh, everybody's taking their turn asynchronously, and then either figuring out what happens. But, you know, imagine making a game where you have hundreds or even millions of people playing all asynchronously. It's so fascinating. So, um, and, and, you know, for the first time in my career, people were really trying to focus on, you know, female gamers, right? Like, I, nobody cared about that before. Uh, so it was fascinating, and it was a blast. Um, then, during that time, um, during that time, I was awarded a Fulbright to come to Ireland to study at game industry. So we drive all over Ireland, top to bottom, we were here for three months. Um, and the short version of that is we just fell in love with the community. Um, wow. And the, I'll, you know, I was, the, the goal of the Fulbright is to sort of write a report and, you know, what are the highs and lows. And I was just wondering, like, why aren't we here? This is this is absolutely incredible. Like, why wouldn't we want to be part of this part of this industry? And um, and so we moved here five years ago, gosh, six years ago now, and have zero regrets. Except maybe like I wish we would come sooner, but other than that, zero regrets. Interesting is you you mentioned that um, the game industry sometimes is a bit like high end fire and 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 instable and so on. You know. Of course, since I'm interviewing people like you, I also have some friends and people I know in the game industry. And when I said, like, okay, I'm working on interviewing the the Romeros, I was told that this could be difficult. And I was like, I I don't know. I mean, uh, and people were like, how did you get 
John to talk to you. And I said, like, I asked him. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, and even asked him. And uh, was like, one of the nicest people I've met. No problems John whatsoever, is, you know. He really is. He's a super... He, he, I mean, obviously, I'm hugely biased. But he yeah. really is a super nice guy. So, so I, really don't, I don't know why, why people think that John is untouchable or why it's so difficult, well, but I had no problems. Probably, so I would say, so as a lot of the emails, there's a, uh, there's a basic email that is on our site that, you know, here, go ahead and send an email in. He probably gets, I would say, like, so I'm looking at my email right now. There is one request that I'm positive because it says invite you to be on, and I can't imagine it's not going to say podcast after that or <laughs> stream or something. Um but he probably gets two, three requests a day. Wow. Okay. So he would. I mean, he could do it full time. It doesn't pay anything, but he could do it full time. Right. So. Right. Um, but I think there's, you know, there are like, there are certain things, you know, for him, like you know, focusing on retro stuff and game history is incredibly important. That's so, why I invited you guys. That's yeah, exactly why. That's and that's what we do. That's why I wanted to talk to you separately and not in the same interview because I wanted to cover both of your stories. And and get equally rights to everybody, especially yeah, since you mentioned in that interview people always focus on John and not on your career. So. Well, it's, you know, I mean, the thing about it is, is it's well, not so much like you know it depends on if there's there's separate. But John, I think funny enough to think with the biggest issue like Doom and Quake were out. They are, you know, it's like having it's like you know parking a Ferrari on the street. They they were mega successes, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. everybody knows them, and even, it's like, you know, it's like Black Sabbath, like everybody's heard all their songs, but it doesn't mean you don't want to hear them all again, right? right, so, right, right. Uh, and plus with John, he has hyperthymesia, which is a, a near photograph, it's, it's a near perfect autobiographical recall, so mm. if you ask me a question, you are going to get what I remember from 1981. <laughs> if you ask John a question, you are going to get Every single piece of detail that he has not forgotten right. since 1981, right? So, wow. Yeah, so it's 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 uh yeah it's it's always interesting, but yeah no I it's fun to be it's fun interviewing with him or separately like you know we've done loads of interviews together some of the most we did this once because a host dropped out at the last second. I'm like, well, I can ask you questions. You know, I'm comfortable on the stage. <laughs> wow, okay. I know a story. So um, so I went out and I interviewed John. And because I know, like, the interesting things that people have not asked a hundred times, um, and I know, I just know a story. And so those, so actually since then, I probably, that was an accident, but it's probably happened I don't know, 10 times since then, where it's me interviewing John. Wow, interesting, yeah. Well, uh, you, you, you notice I'm persistent, so I kept asking you for four years yeah. when you have time. Yeah. So. It's, been really it's been four years? Four years, yes, four years. You are persistent, my God. Yeah, okay, and you emailed me like, try again half a year, try again in a year. <laughs> and, then, and, and, and then some weeks ago, you were like, you know what? I'm sending this to my secretary. Now you make an appointment. So you yeah. it sounded like you were fed up with me asking no. you or something. <laughs> no way. I mean, like it wouldn't be. No, it wouldn't be fed. If anything, impressed with the persistence. I wouldn't. Um, 
I wouldn't, uh, you know, when somebody cares enough about your work to want to talk to you about it, that's no reason to ever be set up with something. If you wanted to call and harass me, sure, I'd be set up then. <laughs> no, I mean, that's an honor. No, no. I mean, I mean, you can, you can ask AJ. I, some people I, I was after for 10 years. Yeah. Oh, literally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Literally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah, he, is, I, he is persistent, and he uh, he knows who to he knows who's important and who to go after. Right. So. At least I try. I try. Yeah. Right. Well, so um, what's your future plans right now? Right now, working on Empire Sin. Absolutely, we're working on uh, DLC. We're working on the Make It Count DLC right now, and then obviously I can't tell you what's beyond that, but um, but Empire is in for you know for the foreseeable for the future anyway. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll, real yeah. quick, I'm gonna just sure. I'm, I'm just I just followed her on uh, on Twitter and it says uh, metal music lover. What is your favorite metal? Music? Oh my god. Um, <laughs> you know this is like this is now this. Oh my god, it's such this is such a hard question and it should not be because <laughs> I go between. Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, which is like the canonical answer. Right. But, but like edging in there is a group called Pain of Salvation. Uh, and oh my God, do I love Pain of Salvation! If you have not <laughs> listened to Pain of Salvation, I they're more they're more like a progressive metal um, okay. band. God, do I love them! I just I can't even. There's a video, a live video on YouTube that is. You know, like how you wear tapes out or you wear records yeah. out. I would have worn YouTube out if that were possible. <laughs> so I absolutely love these bands; they're fantastic. So, you know, it's it, the canonical answer is I can't make up my mind between Jewish Priest and Black Sabbath. It depends on the day. Right. The what am I listening to the most right now would probably be uh, Pain of Salvation. Absolutely love them and, and have loved them for the last three, four years. Awesome. Uh, I'll add that to my repertoire. We'll yeah, you love it. It's so yeah. good. Yeah, and, and your stuff can be found, I guess, on Romero.com, right? Yeah, yeah, Romero.com or RomeroGames.com. Yeah, yeah or if you're interested in my board games, I think it's Brenda.Games. Yeah, I was just going to say. Wonderful, wonderful. And you've got a fantastic Twitter handle. It's just at beyond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's old school. Um, yeah. But it's the, the downside of having such a short handle is it means I get, like, in, when I look at my mentions column, mm -hmm. probably 70 or 80% of it is pure spam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so that's the downside of it. But it's, yeah, it is nice to have that short handle. It certainly works on any business card, <laughs> any, any slide deck, any anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got myself Jörg at Drew. Dot GE, which is just my name. So, trying to explain it to my mom, like, why GE? Because it's true. Dot GE. So, but so I, I understand. Everybody's confused about my email address, and I tell them. Like, <laughs> 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 right. Um, you too. Bye bye. bye, -bye. Okay, you. Have a good one.